Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining me via Zoom, is my friend Marcy McPhee. Welcome to the podcast, Marcy. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you, Richard, for this opportunity. Um, I kind of twisted Marcy's arm to come on the podcast, and I'm so grateful. It wasn't hard. (laughs) And so grateful she's willing to do this. Marcy has been the editor um, in this September. My third book is coming out, and Marcy's been my lead editor on book two and three, and is just a terrific um, editor, terrific human being, terrific Latter-day Saint, and has a personal story behind um, her editing skills that is remarkable. And I've come to learn more of that story and felt it would be helpful for you listeners to hear from her. Um, let me just introduce um, the episode is Marcy McPhee. She's active, divorce LDS. She's the editor to Steve Young's book, um, Law of Love. She'll talk about that. Two of my three books, plus my brother David's book. And then how do I say the next uh, authors correctly? I always forget how to say her name right. She's Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh. And I've heard her speak, and she is um, terrific. And... um, you can, you may be, if you're looking for editor, just um, you may want to reach out to Marcy. She's not, it's not the reason she's doing this podcast is to drum up more work, but you can find Marcy if you want to contact her for any reason at marcymcfeerider.com. And her last name, first name is spelled M-A-R-C-I. And her last name is M-C-P-H-E-E. And if you didn't get that, we'll put that in the show notes and so you can find her. Um, these are the four sections um, that Marcy will be going through. Um, section one, and I love her title. She's given this. Um, do what God is calling you to do, no matter what anyone else says. Section two, chase, take truth f- from wherever you find it. Section three, don't be afraid of an unconventional career and life path. Section four, grab your courage and walk through the doors, the doors God opens. Um, I became aware of Marcy, and she'll probably share more of this story through my friends Evan and Cheryl Smith, and they have a website called gayldscrossroads.org. They've been on the podcast, terrific human beings, terrific family, and I'm in the middle of writing my second book. I think I connected with Marcy, and I just felt this impression that this book is going to be better with Marcy's involvement, and that that is true, as well as this third book that's coming out in the fall. Um, so thank you, Evan and Cheryl, if you're listening, for connecting me with Cher- with <laughs> sorry, Evan and Cheryl connecting me with Marcy. And we said a prayer before we started. Marcy has a unique life story. Um, it's probably different than it, she thought it would be when she joined the church at 16. And Amen to that. <laughs> and um, I think our lives turn out differently often than we think. And Marcy, part of, I think, what Marcy will share is how she navigated the difficult chapters of her life and the disappointments and the turns and and as well as her career and some of her desires to serve in unconventional ways. I call those callings that don't show up on LDS tools, but are often very needed and inspired from her heavenly parents. So with that, Marcy, tell us where you're joining us from. Uh, (laughs) So I'll just leave it at home bases, Baton Rouge for the moment, and you'll hear more about that in the podcast. All right. Well, welcome from Baton Rouge, and I'll turn it over to you, Marcy. All right. Well, I'm thrilled to be here, Richard. Usually I'm interviewing you when we're on Zoom together and we're working on one of your books. But I guess today is my turn on the hot seat. So true. when I thought about how to spend this hour together, I prayerfully decided to pull out those four key life lessons that you enumerated and then tell the parts of my story to illustrate how I learned those lessons. So I come from a long line of storytellers and we've got many decades to cover. So let's dive in. Number one, doing what God is calling you to do, no matter what anyone else says. This is the story of why I divorced twice uh, from temple marriages with a cancellation of sealing in between. 
But starting at the beginning, I was born in Germany. I have two older brothers and one younger brother. I went to first grade in Panama, second grade on in San Antonio. Yep, dad was in the military. I learned about the LDS church at age 16 when missionaries knocked on my brother's door. And he and my sister-in-law brought me to church with them once. I had the missionary discussions. There were eight of them in those days and was baptized 10 days after setting foot in church for the first time. Wow. I went to BYU. I met and married my return missionary in the Provo Temple, and we moved to Boston for his first job. Four kids and, and 12 years later, I divorced him for very good reasons. Sometimes partnerships are harmful and need to end to protect one or more people involved. And that's all I feel impressed to say right now about that. Uh, after a while, I met husband number two at church. He was newly sober and Alcoholics Anonymous and had just joined the church. He had full-time custody of his two kids, ages two and six. He eventually proposed, and I kept him waiting for three months for an answer. I said, look, I really love you, but can any two human beings do what we're setting out to do here with this blended family. I had three sons, ages 14, 13, and 11, and a nine-year-old daughter. And he has had an, uh, a nine-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son. And after much prayer and pondering, I finally felt good about it. So after three years of dating, we were married in the temple and we got a, I got a cancellation of sealing so we could be sealed. And that was our blended family of six kids, the oil and water kind of blend. <laughs> After three years of marriage, husband number two was on the verge of violence, and he knew I wasn't going to stand for that again. So he and his kids moved out to an apartment 1.9 miles from the house. We stayed very married. We did scriptures every night by phone instead of pillow to pillow. We went out every Saturday night, took turns sleeping over each other's houses, we tried everything we could think of to make it work. And after three years of that, we were no closer to putting the family back together. So we sold the house and bought a duplex. He lived with his kids on one side and I live with mine on the other. Wow. He got a connecting door upstairs for adults only. And one by one, the kids left. I moved into the same side of the duplex and he patched over the connecting door. And we rented out the other side. We should have been into our happily ever after, but it didn't work out, and we divorced after 20 years of marriage. That means I was 12 years in my first temple marriage, had a second, had a cancellation of sealing, then 20 years in the second temple marriage, and now I'm single. When I ended both marriages, I had plenty of naysayers, but I knew clearly what God was calling me to do. I knew I had done what I could to preserve our family and keep my covenants. God let me know that it was time to move on for everyone's sake. Especially when my first marriage ended in 1985, I knew only one other active LDS woman who divorced. It just wasn't done in those days. Time and all eternity meant you were locked in and that was it. But I knew what God was calling me to do. And part of that came from being get it, from getting acquainted with the Spirit throughout my lifetime, learning to recognize God's voice. When I felt clearly his guidance to leave, even if that meant a lifetime of church service, alternating between the nursery and the library, because those were the only places that a divorced woman could be trusted to serve, well, so be it. In fact, just the opposite turned out to be true in my case. Details in your third book, Richard, coming out this fall. But even if I had sustained even, even if I had faced sustained backlash and repercussions from others, it would have been worth it to do what God called me to do. Now I don't attend singles activities because I don't feel single. I wear an ambiguous ring on my left hand, and in people may wonder, is that a wedding ring? Is that not a wedding ring? I am not interested. I'm never lonely, ever. I almost always I feel respected and feel like I'm taken seriously at church as a single woman, perhaps partly because I take myself seriously. I use my voice. I expect it to be treated well. Or maybe I just won at leadership roulette most of the time. Regardless, I take myself seriously and God takes me seriously. And that's what matters to me. My job is to speak up when God inspires me to do so. But I can't control how other people respond. 
Regardless of any social repercussions, my life decisions have been worth it for me. So to close this segment, my first life lesson, do what God is calling you to do, no matter what anyone else says. If you spend all your time listening to the backseat drivers or looking in your rearview mirror, you can't watch the road in front of you. We sing Jesus, Savior, Pilot, Me, and I'm learning to, to mean it. As Carolyn Pearson says, be brave enough no matter what comes. So that's um, that first life lesson. That's great. I have some thoughts, but I'm, I think you should just keep sharing, Marcy. All right, here we go. Uh, and I do want to hear your thoughts, but here's life lesson number two. Take truth from wherever you find it. This is the story of how I'm healing. So back up to my second marriage on the rocks. My second husband was sober in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and a passionate advocate of 12-step programs in addition to the church, using both to develop a relationship with a higher power. You may know that AA is now the basis of many different 12-step programs, including the LDS Church's 12-step addiction recovery program, but this was long before the LDS addiction recovery program began. At that time, Al-Anon was coming at me through three different doors. You may know that Al-Anon is a 12-step program for family and friends of alcoholics and addicts. That woman who was the only other divorced active Latter-day Saint that I knew in those days, she was finding relief in Al-Anon. So I went to my first Al-Anon meeting in a smoky hospital basement, and I immediately felt the Holy Ghost. God, what are you doing here? <laughs> no organ, no pulpit, not the setting I expected to feel God's presence. But that uh, those years in Al-Anon, that 12-step recovery program is foundational to my healing. I learned that I had a complementary addiction called codependence, which for me is people-pleasing and trying to control situations so everyone would be happy. Codependence is just as lethal and destructive as other addictions. Central to 12-step recovery is step four, which is a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself. And the key word there is yourself, not anyone else. It's easy to do searching and fearless moral inventory of other people, but of yourself. Uh, it Well, it took me two years and two days to do what is called a big book step study process with my sponsor, which is dumping out the whole bag of garbage of life and looking at my own part in it. I played my role in those two failed marriages. I won't elaborate on my shortcomings, but let's just say that I'm not always as right as I think I am. And it was healing for me to recognize my part. And it didn't feel like self-flagellation because as long as something is everyone else's fault, I can't change the situation. Once I saw my own part, I could repent and change behave differently, and feel peace. Let me say that again. Finding my own part, repenting, brought me peace and helped me change my situation. Another healing outlet for me is writing. Journal entries, memoir, getting all the pain out of my head and onto the page really helps me. Lots of scripture study. I love the scriptures. Lots of temple worship. I love the temple and prayer. Sometimes the spiritual tools don't work for some people at some dark times, but for me, they've always been a reliable way to connect with my all-powerful heavenly parents. So through, through whatever steps on your own healing journey, God can heal your wounds and make you a more useful servant to others. When I was called as Relief Society president, I could look over my sisters and connect with almost every situation they were facing because I faced it too. And I know, Richard, how much you uh, often talk about the quote from Henry Nguyen about wounded healers. And uh, here I'll read from my story in your third book that's coming out this fall. Quote, my brutal past of divorce, visitation dynamics, step family challenges, a beloved teenage son in foster care, when all the home chaos was just too much. And in this podcast, I would add a domestic abuse survivor. All of that carnage in my wake makes me much more useful, not less, in God's healing hands. <clears throat> I was more effective in my service to my Relief Society sisters because I genuinely understood people in similar situations. I had walked that road, end quote. 
Steve Young said, and quoting now from his book, The Law of Love, when Christ alchemizes the worst of the worst, you have the chance to be a special agent in that area for your good and the good of others. He needs modern day experts in all this stuff to help all his children, no matter what challenges they face, each one paying it forward, end quote. So that's my second life lesson. Take truth from wherever you find it. It's wonderful that the church has adapted the 12 steps and brought it under the church umbrella, but you need not seek for truth in only correlated sources. There's plenty of truth to be found inside and outside the church, whether that's in secular 12-step recovery, personal writing, through other through whatever means you are finding relief and healing, each of which I believe leads to the ha- the master healer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's my life lesson number two. Wow, that was really powerful and very brave of you. Um, thank you for that segment. Life lesson number three, don't be afraid of an unconventional career and life path. This unconventional home life path included a parallel unconventional career. So I passed my last final at BYU for my undergraduate degree two days before my oldest son was born. So I went straight from college to stay-at-home mom until the youngest was in in kindergarten. Being a stay-at-home mom is not for everyone, but I loved it. And when I divorced the first time, I started working part-time, just the hours the kids were in school, because you don't pay daycare for six kids (laughs) and come out ahead anyway. Um, I worked at Brandeis University in the Boston area, which is a non-sectarian, Jewish-sponsored, small, private university, which I affectionately call the Jewish BYU. I was a staff member working with many wonderful students, co-workers, faculty, and other staff. I did teach one small uh, practicum course, which I loved. But over my 29-year career at Brandeis, I went from part-time secretary to director of campus programs at the International Center for Ethics, Justice, and Public Life, which I helped to found. I ran a student fellowship program that supported Brandeis undergraduates and summer internships worldwide. I was lucky enough to be sent on business trips to South Africa, Northern Ireland, Kenya, and Tanzania. I often spoke with students, particularly women, about my career path, starting as a full-time mom, then a part-time secretary, pushing the boundaries of what I knew with an enormously supportive boss who let me try and fail and try again, knowing that he had my back. I had a fabulous career in higher education after having done the thing that I most wanted to do, being a full-time mom. I love that so many choices are available to women, and that may not be the path that calls your name, but for me, it was thrilling to launch my youngest when I was 44 years old and have a whole nother lifetime ahead of me, as it happens two lifetimes, but more on that later. In 2009, I took a year leave of absence from my job to do volunteer English teaching in the Marshall Islands in the Pacific through World Teach. I taught five English classes of high schoolers that academic year, and it was a phenomenal experience. It's one of the hardest things I've ever done, um, but it was really just remarkable. I left for the Marshalls about six months after my second divorce to spend a year on a remote Pacific island to clear my head what just happened. And having that year to totally shift gears and do something completely different, knowing no one, gave me a whole new direction for growth, interspersed with moments of reflection to sort out my past and try to make sense of it all. In preparing for this teaching year abroad, remember that summer internship program that I ran at Brandeis University? Well, I read my own preparation handbook that I had written this time for myself, did my own checklist, (laughs) just like I asked my students to do. I came to know and love these open-hearted Marshallese, their community-based society, not individualistic like the USA. Well, it blew my mind. I'm still connected to several beloved Marshallese friends. Back to Brandeis, my job was still waiting for me, much to my relief, and I resumed my life. 
In my 29th year working at Brandeis in Boston, my 93-year-old mom couldn't live alone anymore and moved in with my brother and sister-in-law in San Antonio, Texas. I left Boston, moved in with the three of them to be mom's full-time caregiver. According to my plan, mom was supposed to last seven years and make it to 100. Instead, she lasted seven months and had her third and final stroke and passed away peacefully. People would ask me, you moving back to Boston? And I said, to what? I quit my job. I sold my condo. I sold my car. Nearly everything I owned is in a container on its way to a Syrian refugee camp. Nice bait and switch, mom. What am I doing living with my brother in Texas? And thus we see, as the scriptures say, that even when we think we have settled into a more predictable path, that God may call us in unpredictable ways that are nonetheless fulfilling adventures. After a while, I started to feel like I had another international volunteer experience left in me. This time I wanted to do a volunteer year on my own instead of through a program. I felt called to Ghana in West Africa, although I've never been. I asked my former Brandeis grad student worker from from Ghana for a reality check. I asked him, is this crazy to think I'd spend a year on my own as a very tall, very conspicuous, very white woman? And he said, it's absolutely not crazy. And if you want, you can volunteer at my high school, my alma mater, the, the Agona Nyakram Senior High Technical School, which is two and a half hours west of Accra. He cleared it with the village chief. He introduced me via email to the headmaster. I got my shots. I booked my flight for the fall of 2020 and then COVID. That's a complete sentence. And then COVID. <laughs> the next year, the following fall of 2021 was no better. I was still in this waiting game when a friend asked me, well, what are you waiting for? You could do the same thing in the U.S. Just go volunteer somewhere for a year. And I realized that working closer to home is no less holy or valuable. Sometimes God gets us started with one destination, but gives us a plot twist and redirects us while we're in progress. It doesn't mean we weren't inspired at the start. It just means that some things change. So I opened my mental map in the USA and said, okay, God, where are we going? <laughs> I had two criteria. It needed to be near a temple and it needed to be warm. I had done 43 New England winters. I had done my time and I was done with winter like that anyway. So in November 2021, I felt God steering me towards Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'd never been there either, but there's a temple in Baton Rouge and it is warm and muggy. And I love it, actually. Um, so I was looking for a volunteer organization, and I contacted my former co-workers at Brandeis, and I said, do you know anyone in Baton Rouge? And one of my co-workers said, yeah, my identical twin sister. <laughs> and so wow. by, the, by this time, my writing and editing career had taken off, more on that next, and I could work from anywhere. So my plan was to spend one day a week volunteering in the local community, spend a day, a day in the week in the temple, a day a week exploring Baton Rouge and New Orleans, and that left me three days a week to work. It's not rigid like that, but that's about how I wanted to spend my time. So in February of 2022, I visited Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge for a week to check it out before deciding for sure to live there for a year. So I asked God, is this the place? And I felt God's clear impression, this is the place, drive on. That identical twin sister was working with an interesting organization in Baton Rouge, Ebony and Ivory Restoration and Design, which restores furniture, much of it salvaged from Hurricanes Katrina and Ida. And they're renovating their small historic house, which is also their office and shop, to build a small showroom to snap photos of furniture to sell online. And they thought, well, if we're building this beautiful little showroom, let's open it. Let's use the use it, open the doors and make it a community gathering place in this under-resourced neighborhood. Let's have after-school tutoring and meeting with political re representatives and self-reliance and career exploration <laughs> workshops and art nights in the space. We have a million ideas and we're in the process of thinking about what might be the most fruitful direction to meet the needs of the community. 
So I moved to Baton Rouge in July of 2022. And now in the summer of 2023, that volunteer year is turning into a volunteer two years because things move kind of slowly in Louisiana and it takes a while to build community connections. And I also kind of love it here. I thought I would like it, but I kind of love it. And much to my astonishment, there's even a Spanish-speaking branch, and I'm learning Spanish muy lentamente, very slowly, since high school. But And my motto has been, if I just never give up on this language, one day I'll get it. So I have a minimalist lifestyle. I have no car. I walk to the temple and church that share a parking lot. It takes me 25 minutes one way. I can take the bus around town for 35 cents a ride at the senior rate. And I can take Lyft and Uber if there's some place that I can't get to one of those other ways. I have very little stuff. I told my kids they have no idea how lucky they are. And anyone who has ever cleaned out a parent's house knows exactly what I mean. I rented an unfurnished apartment. I bought two patio chairs for living room furniture, two end tables that are folding camping chair. I Sorry, folding camping tables for my end tables. I sleep on a two-inch camping mattress on the floor, and that's it. I'm mm-hmm. one of the few people I know who works on their laptop in their lap sitting on a patio chair. Wow. Most everything I have folds up when I move to the next pop-up apartment. If I ever do, people ask me what's next. And I look upwards and I say, yeah, God, what's next? And he's not telling. (laughs) Not yet. Anyway, staying in Louisiana is possible. Ghana is still on the table. Another U.S. based volunteer somewhere else is on the table. Moving to Panama is a possibility. Back to that place where my four to seven year old self grew up on that military base. Before she passed, my elderly mom and I vacationed in Panama so she could narrate it all, and we found the exact house that we lived in. You may know that in 1979, the canal zone was turned back over to the Panamanian government, so what used to be military housing is now a family neighborhood. And during that visit to Panama, I had this strong feeling, you are not done with this country. I found hidden memories of particular things in Panama that I didn't know were in my memory banks. What else do I remember that I don't know that I remember? But today I travel a lot to see my six kids and my 16 grandkids. I go to BYU Education Week and a few other fun things. I can work from anywhere, but I don't work everywhere. I'm leaving in a few days to walk the last 62 miles of the Camino in Spain with my daughter and two of my adult grandkids. I'm not even bringing my laptop in this pilgrimage. We're walking 13 to 18 miles a day for five days in a row from Sevilla to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. And by the time this episode airs, I'll be back in the U.S., hopefully in one piece. (laughs) That's the third lesson. Don't be afraid of an unconventional career and life path. Live your own life boldly and brave wherever God leads you and have fun on the journey. What a terrific and unique segment. (laughs) Keep sharing. All right, here we go. Fourth and final life lesson, grab your courage and walk through the door the doors that God opens, which is the story of my writing and editing career. Since my childhood, I dreamed of being a writer with my first book being written in crayon titled The Day the Dolls Came Alive. <laughs> but life got in the way of that writing dream and my sporadic journal entries were most of the writing that I did. In 2004, a woman in my ward in Boston, Linda Hoffman Kimball, who is a wonderful writer, sent out a call for stories about visiting teaching, now ministering for her collection, Chocolate Chips and Charity, visiting teaching in the real world. One day at lunchtime in my office at work, I thought, well, I have no stories, but I do have a thought. So I typed out this one sentence and I quote, I think that visiting teaching is most like what Christ would do if he came to the earth. I think he'd come to your house, see if he could help, give you a spiritual thought, and watch over you. Linda accepted that one sentence for her book, and my writing career was launched in 2004. Wow. She, I then contributed several stories to her other books in her Food and Virtue series. 
And I started publishing my own books. And I'm going to tell you how each of my books came about. And I want you to listen for the ways in which one book opened the door for the next, which led to the next. And you may find the same pattern at work in your own life, too, in different whatever your context may be. So the next milestone in my writing career was when I was serving as state primary president. And in 2014, my counselors and I decided to start a blog, Primary in Zion at WordPress.com, to provide on-demand training for our Word primary presidencies. I told my counselors, I think we're writing a book, a blog post at a time. And after a few years, we took our favorite posts. We invited contributions from friends to fill in holes. I wrote about half of the book and collected stories from many others, and I submitted it. It was rejected by publisher after publisher and finally accepted by Walnut Springs Press. And my first book, Sunday Lessons and Activities for Kids, was published in 2015 when I was 61 years old. That is a long time to wait for your writing dream to come true. When I got the acceptance email on a Tuesday at 11.21 a.m., <laughs> I couldn't work. I couldn't think. I This lifelong dream of being a published writer was coming true. The only thing I could do was drop everything and go to the Boston Temple. I just felt such immense gratitude. After the book came out, my editor at Walnut Springs, Linda Prince, asked me, well, what else you got? I said, what do you mean? What else have I got? Can you just give me a minute with the fact that this lifelong dream is coming true? And she said, sure. But when you're ready, we always have a long list of ideas of books that we don't have time to write. I said, well, go ahead and let me see your list. Maybe something will be working in the back of my mind. So near the bottom of the list was Girls Camp, and I thought, I got this one. So I recruited a co-editor, sorry, recruited a co-editor, the artist, Julia Blake, who served several years as Girls Camp director in Boston. I was almost always in the kitchen, so there was a big part of Girls Camp that I didn't know. And our book, Girls Camp, Ideas for Today's Leaders, was published in 2016. Next, a friend in the ward said, you publish books, I'd like you to edit my memoir. Marsha Lavin and her husband are white. They had two biological kids. They adopted two younger black kids and they shopped around every church in town in New England and found the Latter-day Saints and loved the church. This was pre-1978. And their four children were 13 to seven. Everyone at church was welcoming and they were about to be baptized when the ward missionary said, there's something you need to know. Your white kids can fully participate in the church and your black kids can't be ordained to the priesthood. They can't be sealed to you in the temple. They can't go on missions. They can't be sealed to their own spouses in the temple. And the Lavins thought, how can we join this church when only half of our children can fully participate? So they met with state president Gordon Williams, Gordon Williams. And he said, well, you can wait for a revelation to change the policy or you can exercise faith and join the church. And you and I were alive in those days, Richard, and I don't know what your circle of friends was saying, but mine was saying, sure, the Blacks will receive the priesthood one day in the millennium. So I didn't expect it to happen in my lifetime, but they exercised faith, were baptized, and 55 days later, the revelation ending the priesthood temple ban was received. So 55 days of faith, the remarkable story of Dick and Marsha Lavin, was published in 2018. And like all my books, it's available on Amazon. This book began my entry into the Black LDS community. And after that, I attended Black LDS Legacy Conference in DC for several years. I started listening to podcasts. I started to do more writing with members of the Black LDS community. And in April 2020, for General Conference, we were all encouraged to come with a question. And here was my question. God, I feel drawn to the LGBTQ LDS community. You've let me see what some of my Black LDS siblings have experienced. How can I be an advocate in the LDS LGBTQ community? That was my question. And at this time, some of my family members were uh, coming out as queer, and this was becoming personal. I listened to all five sessions of General Conference, and I felt nothing. I cooked dinner, cleaned up, checked my email, and there was Derek Knox of Beyond the Block introducing me to Evan Smith, who invited me to edit his book, Gay LDS Crossroads. 
Evan, as you mentioned, Richard, Evan is a former state presidency member whose son is gay and with the mind of a lawyer and the storytelling of a dad, his book analyzes church policy and charts a scripture-based path forward. He was asking for my help turning what was basically a legal brief into something more readable. And in April 2020, the book went live. It's a free online searchable book at gaylds.crossroads.org. But you can purchase a printed copy at cost on Amazon for those who prefer paper. Richard, you saw a draft of, of Evan's book, The Before and After, and said, I need you on my book. <laughs> and you had already published your first book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. But I joined Trina Cottle editing your second book, Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving LDS Culture, and your soon-to-be-published book three, Building the Good Ship Zion. Then on September 22nd, 2020, and yes, I had to look it up to nail that date. Richard, you emailed me saying, and I quote, I have an LDS friend that is looking to write a book and we're keeping his name confidential for now. Is this a project that would interest you? End quote. Sure. And 10 days later, your email read, the client is Steve Young. Super Bowl, Super Bowl MVP, quarterback, San Francisco 49ers, now president, co-founder, private equity firm, founder and co-chair with his wife, Barbara, Forever Young, a global charity for children, and me, a nobody from nowhere, as the editor for Steve Young. At the same time, I see words on the page and I'm like, all right, let's get to work. I know what to do with words on the page. And it doesn't matter if it's an NFL Hall of Famer or a gal in the ward. The, the Law of Love came out in April 2022, and Steve and I are working on his second book, The Law of Love in Action, which is coming out in spring 2024. I could tell some stories from our work together on this book, but here's two, quote, two quick moments. Steve said to me, I have to be careful what I say around you because you're going to write it down, and then it's going to show up in black and white. And then I said, uh, Steve... That's my job. <laughs> Another moment I said to Steve, maybe all your life has been building to this. Maybe God gave you all that athletic and professional success so that when God had a message for you to deliver, you had the broadest possible audience. And I thought of Esther in the scriptures, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe this is Steve's Esther moment. Why God saw, I told him, why God saw fit to reveal these truths to the football equivalent of a 14-year-old farm boy is beyond me, but here we are. And it really is revelatory truths in that book. It's just, that man is a deep thinker. It's really revolutionized my life. I believe this is true for each of us. God has prepared us in unique ways to serve him, surrounded by just the right people that he wants you to bless and be blessed by and learn from. My next book, Richard, you introduced me to your brother, David Osler, uh, author of Mi Bridges, Ministering to Those Who Question. And David and I just finished his second book, tentatively titled Bridges 2, Overcoming Contention and Healing Our Divides. Another client is the Reverend Dr. Fatima Saleh, who's the co-author with Margaret Olson Hemming of the Book of Mormon for the Least of These. She's working with me on a book titled Love Memory, which is a collection of her short memoir pieces from her fascinating life, including why an LDS return missionary is now a reverend doctor and a Southern Baptist minister, along with a matching. So her book, Love Memory, also has a matching workbook asking the reader to do their own pondering and writing about how love shows up in their lives and how that love asks them to show up for others. I have other clients, including Allison Dayton, and some with names you might recognize, others you wouldn't, regular folks like me. I've also enjoyed doing my own writing as well as editing with several uh, uh, articles and stories published in various magazines and books, as well as my first op-ed in a newspaper. <laughs> All of this is much to my astonishment. This is an entire new career for me. I consider myself prematurely retired from my higher ed career to care for mom, but I had no idea that I had a, another whole writing and editing career ahead of me. So to sum up this fourth and final lesson, grab your courage and walk through the doors that God opens. For me and for perhaps for you, 
God's work and his call are made manifest in the opportunities and connections that arise. When I ask, okay, God, what's next? God does not send down an angel to announce my next chapter as much as I might like it that he would take that step. But usually it's someone or something from my past connecting me to a new opportunity. Some Usually I find that God has prepared me enough that I can stretch and accept it. And maybe the that God works in the same in your life. That was a terrific segment. I'm just, I you know, listeners, even though I know Marcy and I spent probably 50, I mean, hundreds of hours with her on these books, I've never taken the time to hear Marcy's story. Um, and I've sort of known some of these dots, but to hear... And I realize you could spend an hour on each one of these sections and you've, since you're an editor, you're really good at getting through an incredible amount of content in a short time. Um, Keep sharing though, and I'll come back to some thoughts. Uh, That's it for me. I've got some wrap up thoughts, including a wrap up story that is going to knock your socks off, (laughs) but, uh, but uh, I'll turn it over to you, Richard, for any comments, thoughts, questions. Okay. Um, one of the things that's become a foundational point of this podcast and really my my feelings about each of us is we have to write our own story and with Christ. And it's okay to listen to other stories, but at the end of the day, we've got to write our own stories. And those stories are unique. Our patriarchal blessings are unique. The stories of people in the scriptures are unique. And sometimes culturally, we get sort of pressed into a certain way of thinking about our story. We see other stories, but this is perhaps one of the finest examples of writing your own story, that every aspect of this, there's no one I have ever heard that is like you, Marcy. You don't have a mentor that's gone off to the Marshall Islands, that's gone through two divorces, that lived in a duplex and had a door adjoining that then was not adjoining. There's Nobody I have ever heard even close to like you. And you have lived this principle and you continually turn to the scriptures, to prayer, to the temple, to conference talks, but then you just write your own story. And it is unique and it's beautiful and it's lifted so many people. And um, that's my overall thought, listeners, is how powerful Marcy's story is. And when we write our own stories, I think God brings our gifts to the surface and they're able to happen Versus maybe, I don't want to be negative about the culture, but sometimes we feel impressed to just live our lives the way we're taught. We're not taught, but the way we feel we should to fit into our culture or the expectations of others or what we see as a normal, healthiest path. Um, so that was, you know, I that was my first overall thought. I love you being honest about your two divorces. And these are long marriages, 12 years, 20 years a temple divorce in the middle and um, your courage to stay active in the church during this time when marriage is so valued and you're single um, now and really at peace being single. So um, I like that you had plenty of naysayers. It sounds like you at times had headwinds and, and so you were able to manage that. And that's, um, the second section of Take Truth, uh, wherever you find it, I thought was really thoughtful too. I can't even read my notes, but I love where you talked about being a Release Society present and the things you had gone through, the healing that you needed to go through, not because of any sin, but maybe your mistakes you made, but the pain of being in these difficult marriages. I love the healing that you went through including the recovery program for survivors. And then you, as you became Release Society president, you this line you said, you know, I'm effective in God's healing's hands because of all my life's experiences. And every, I think you said nearly every one of those Release Society sisters you could relate to because life for you wasn't theoretical. Life was real and painful. And you had learned this firsthand and could kind of walk with people where they were walking, even if their road wasn't exactly the same, you got it and you could go there with them. And listeners, I, I love Henry. You say his name correctly, Henry Noro, and I've always said it the wrong way, I think. Um, 
But then this third section, don't be afraid of an unconventional career life path. That is just awesome. Um, that in itself could be a book right there with that title, Marcy. And who goes to the Marshall Islands? Um, who goes, works at this university for 29 years? There's no mentors. There's no one you're looking towards in the LDS faith that's saying, okay, this is somebody that could kind of give me some, that's the power in your stories. You just did things that no one else did. I've always been fascinated with the Marshall Islands because I'm an airline nut and planes get diverted there because it's like this way place out as this massively long runway. And if you're in trouble, you land in the Marshall Islands and you're nodding your head. Maybe you saw some of those big planes land, but the and who goes to Baton Rouge and just says, who sells everything in Boston and then goes and now is living the way you're living um, as a minimalist and just writing your own story that way. And and you're so at peace doing that. There's no like embarrassment in your story or like, it's just, you're just owning yourself. Um, and I think that helps all of us just think outside the dots a little bit. Um, and be brave, prayerful, intentional, but to be learning Spanish at your age. And I think you're in a Spanish branch intentionally. Is that right? Oh, yes. So who does that? Who goes when you could go to the English branch when you already don't know anybody in Baton Rouge, but here you proactively chose to go to a Spanish branch. <laughs> That's a little harder when you need and to learn Spanish. And that's just kind of who you are. I like this term pop-up, um, pop-up apartment. Then this last section we got in your books, um, I just love, and I'm looking for my notes and then I want to get Marcy talking again, but, um, a great shout out to Derek Knox. We haven't talked about Derek, but I'm glad you brought him up. What a terrific man he is. And, um, Cheryl and Evan Smith and their work. Um, uh, I had, you know, people sometimes say crazy things happen on the airlines and I'm, I don't like to name drop the amount of airline travel I've done, but I'm a 5 million miler on Delta airlines. And I have had one experience. That's an outlying experience where something happened that I felt God's intervention and in all those flights. And it was a flight from Philadelphia to Boston. And I, I was concluding a business meeting and there was snow in the Boston airport and the flights were getting canceled. And I had seen, we couldn't get out. And I was really looking forward to meeting with Evan and Cheryl and just going to Evan's office and just hearing their story. And I, and I felt listeners, and I don't like to be dramatic, but if you asked me if I had one intervention in all those flights where God was involved in getting me where I needed to be, I would say it was meeting Evan and Cheryl Smith and the chance to meet them and hear their story. Um, two incredibly remarkable humans that um, do so much and love their family and have bring so much understanding to the road of a gay Latter-day Saint. And they're two of my heroes. And, and um, then um, I'm glad you brought up Trina Caudell. She has been involved in all three books, um, but I felt impressed after reading Evan's Gay LDS Crossroads. It's now a book on Amazon, I believe, um, that I needed to get Marcy because um, this combined effort of Trina and Marcy would make my books better. And I am not a writer. My ACT test score on the English side of is like single, it's barely above 10 or 12. So I do much better on the math. And in our family raising kids, none of our kids came to me for anything except math. Um, my wife is uh, much more gifted in those. So I needed to surround myself with somebody like you. And so I'm glad. And a little more backstory in the Steve Young book, because you know, Steve has wrote the forward to my first book and I didn't know Steve until I started to say kind things about LGBTQ people personally. And we met at an event and became friends and he would just call and um, talk about the things that are in his law of love book. And um, I said, Steve, you need to write a book. And he said, you're right. I need to write a book. And after talking to Steve, and if you're listening, Steve, 
I tell you this to your face, but after six months, the impression came to my mind is Steve is never going to write a word. <laughs> and it's just not his gift. I think he could write. Um, I think he has so much going on in his brain and his life that he's never going to be able to sit down and write. And then I was connecting with Marcy and I got the idea, and maybe you got the idea, Marcy, we should just record Steve Young talking. And Marcy then, because I can't write, um, I, I can write more than Steve, um, but uh, we can get Marcy to write everything down. And so that's the way the law of love was born is Steve would just talk and talk and Marcy would record these Zoom meetings and then turn all that um, great content that often would be Steve just creatively thinking and telling stories that I'd never heard before that he's never remembered until and then Marcy would put this all onto into words and then Steve would read. Steve can read really well and then have really insightful comments that improve the book and Marcy then would run with those. And so that's how the law of love happened. The law of love would not happen without Marcy McPhee. Um, obviously without Steve Young and perhaps, you know, me connecting, but that's back to Evan and Cheryl and Derek Knox. I wouldn't have known Marcy. She was she is the perfect person to write, to help Steve Young in that book. Um, and that book, I'm not sure would exist because I'm not sure Steve would have ever written a word. <laughs> well, I I have to say that some of the most um, uh, exasperating moments would be when Steve would just have an idea and he would call me in the middle of <laughs> anything. And I would see his caller ID on my phone and I would say, I'm taking this call because He's a tough guy to catch, as you may yeah. know. So I and and I would get on and he would say, you know, I've been thinking. And and then he would say this profound stuff. And it's like, don't tell me these profound things when I'm not being recorded, right. when, when I'm not recording, you know. And so I would I would be there literally with a pen and paper. And I'd say, don't say anything profound for a minute. Let me just write that part down. <laughs> so, so getting all this stuff out of Steve's head and, and into the book. And uh, okay, Richard, we'll give you that that your ACT score or whatever you need, but you you write and you write from the heart. <laughs> and so it's um it's it's a beautiful thing for Trina and me to take your words and and to polish them up. But it, well, you don't maybe have that's to a story. In, maybe that's a story in developing skills that your ACT test score didn't reflect were there. <laughs> I don't know exactly. But um, that was just a beautiful. Um, I really felt God's hand in getting the book, um, Steve's book, Law of Love, and now the second book. You're working directly with him, and um, you're mature, seasoned. And one of the gifts Marcy has is. She has the ability to find things in the scripture. So sometimes we'll have an idea and Marcy's going to get embarrassed here. Maybe she won't, but we'd have an idea or a concept we wanted to communicate, a doctrinal concept. And But often we were lacking the scriptural support or a conference talk or a church leader. And Marcy's like a walking encyclopedia on the scriptures and church talks. And so one of her gifts is, is bringing... Um, the scaffolding to a doctrinal statement. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit of the writing which you got in, but it's, you know, it's just a and remarkable I, part of your story is that this has come now. Um, and I'm glad you're working with my brother. I'm excited for his book. I have so much respect for, gosh, I'm not very good at the names, for Reverend Sahil, how do I say her last name? Soleil. Soleil. That's not very hard. I heard her speak early in my journey as an ally at Sunstone, and I wasn't there live, but somebody sent me her recording at Sunstone, and it trans it's one of the most impactful speeches I've ever heard because you just talked about how Jesus was with the marginalized over and over again. And instead of just saying that, like sometimes we say that, she made it real for me with her examples and being a, a black woman, um, having part of her story being part of a marginalized group just hit my heart as I was um, wanting to follow the doctrinal and spiritual impressions I felt to be an ally. So I'm glad that you're involved in that book and it'll be a powerful book. So I'm going to turn it back to you, Marcy, for, um, 
this uh, there's just people listening that this podcast will help, especially younger people that are perhaps saying, how do I, you know, I, I, you've had a, I love Elder Bednar's talk where he talks about the light switch and instant revelation. But most of my revelation perhaps is like you, or you're walking into the fog and you're doing that a lot your whole life, but you just take a step and it opens the next door for you. And so much of your story is like that. And where you are right now in this wonderful time of your life, and now you're off to Europe, I guess when people hear this podcast, you're back, but I hope everybody got the amount of miles you're walking. And if people are really thoughtful, they meant, you mentioned in, I'm looking at my notes, listeners, that you mentioned in 2015, you're 61. So if anybody wants to do some quick math there, they can figure out your current age as you're doing all that, that walking in Europe. And um, so... You are a unique Latter-day Saint and a gift to our community um, and a gift to the world for the way you're serving often outside of a traditional LDS tools calling. So back to you, Marcy. Well, yes, this is the big 7-0 for me this year. <laughs> and uh, and I ain't even peaked yet. I mean, this is great. <laughs> but when you say... Um, I have no mentor in this. It's really true, but the best mentor of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so just to continue to be going wherever he leads me, that's all I need, even though uh, these are uncharted waters for, for me too, but it's it's a blast. And, um, and back to my mental Rolodex that I've been building my entire life. And now you have the benefit of, of decades of scripture study and, and collecting stories. I feel like I have an inner Leahona. <clears throat> and, and I really feel like God leads me to the more fertile parts of the wilderness. And sometimes it's me pulling in my favorite stories that connect to the points that you're making and um, or you or my other clients are making. And, and sometimes it's nearly pure revelation when I one time was looking for a, a, a story to back up an, a concept. And the thought came into my mind, Bruce C. Hafen, all for all, April 2004 or something like that. And it was like, really? I mean, where did that come from? And and to receive it in that level of specificity, having that kind of a liahona leading me to the more fertile parts of the wilderness of my mind. And, uh, and there are times when I have had a reverse liahona, when I have had to weed out the least fertile parts of a manuscript that is entirely too long. <laughs> and, and so I just uh, give God the glory. Wow. Now, you have some wrap-up story you want to share. I have a knock-your-socks-off wrap-up wrap up story. So, one of, these, one of those Brandeis business trips took me to visit one of my students in the Kakamega Rainforest in western Kenya. Jamie Pottern was staying with her host family, but where was I going to stay if I came to visit her on this business trip? <clears throat> it turns out that there were two ecotourism sites in the rainforest. And Jamie's site supervisor asked me whether I preferred running water or electricity. I never thought about which was my favorite utility. <laughs> if you want to know, I, I chose electricity, but found out that both were highly overrated. But that's another story. Uh, I arrived in Kenya and met my student for dinner at that ecotourism site. There were four other thatched roof huts around the common area where they served dinner. There are no restaurants or fast food spots in the rainforest. And so I slowly realized that my student and I were the only ones at dinner, which meant that my hut was the only one occupied that night. I had already determined that my cell phone didn't work in this remote location, and I had no idea how to find my way back to the village if I needed help. Jamie was going back to her host family, and I was going to be alone in the rainforest. And there wasn't a blessed thing I could do about it. As he was cleaning up our dinner dishes, the host said, need anything else, mama? Okay, then see you in the morning. God is your bodyguard. I decided I may as well relax into the adventure. 
God was my bodyguard that night and throughout my life. And God is your bodyguard, too. That doesn't mean bad things never happen. But as Domingo Sabino said, loosely translated from Brazilian Portuguese, everything turns out okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. So to recap, one, do what God is calling you to do, no matter what anyone else says. Two, take truth from wherever you find it. Your healing path may look like no one else's. Three, don't be afraid of an unconventional career and life path. Four, grab your courage and walk through the doors that God opens. So in closing, President Gordon B. Hinckley loved to quote Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, who said, anyone who imagines that bliss is normal is going to waste a lot of time running around that's shouting that he's been robbed. The fact is that most putts don't drop. Most beef is tough. Most children grow up to be just ordinary people. Most successful marriages require a high degree of mutual toleration. Most jobs are more often dull than otherwise. Life is like an old rail time journey. Delays, sidetracks, smoke, dust, cinders, and jolts interspersed only occasionally by beautiful vistas and thrilling bursts of speed. Wow. The trick is to thank the Lord for letting you have the ride. And I'm here to thank my heavenly parents for letting me have the ride. It's a grand life. Wow. I'm just so moved. Anything else you'd like to share? Thank you, Richard, for this opportunity. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm just so moved, Marcy. You're a remarkable human, great friend, um, somebody I deeply admire, love, and respect. And thank you for sharing your story on the podcast. And listeners, you can find Marcy, and we'll put it in the show notes at marcymcfeerider.com. And this is Marcy McPhee. And Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.